And there came a day. A day unlike... Wait. No, that's been done. Hmm. Who knows what evil lurks in... No, that is that other thing. What has yellow skin and rights? Ah, forget it. You're listening to Panelology. Excelsior, oh, damn it. Welcome to episode 274 of Panelology. I'm Alex. I'm Brian. And I'm Case Aiken. Welcome back, Case. Thanks for having me back on. Yeah. Yeah, we had so much fun the first time when you reached out and said, hey, let's do it again. The answer was an immediate yes. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, I'm really happy to. I'm, uh, I'm going into wedding season shortly, assuming things don't change uh, dram- dramatically with <laughs> other things in the world. Uh, and I was like, well, I- I'd love to be back on soon. And I don't, I'm definitely not going to be free anytime <laughs> in August or September. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, awesome. We're glad you you thought to reach out and come back. And uh, there's a lot of Superman this week to talk about, which makes it a great yeah, week. There and is. a lot of Superman adjacent to talk about. Yeah, and and Marvel Space, which is like another thing. I don't have a podcast for it, but I kind of feel like I should because yeah. I love Marvel Space. So the timing is perfect. Let's dig into it because there's a bunch of ground we want to cover. Uh, first... Let's throw Case to the Wolves and make him tell us about Gru meets Tarzan, number one. Oh, snap. Okay. So, I, I saw this uh, on the on the shelf, and I was like, oh, you know what? I I want to bring something fun to, the, fun, uh, fun to the show. And I remember Gru as just an indie book from the 90s that I would see a lot, but I never really read. Um, but I am a Tarzan nut, and so I was curious and picked it up. And it is a more meta book than I was expecting. <laughs> uh, uh, for one thing, like I said, I was not super familiar with Gru back in the day, aside from just seeing it on the shelves. It's apparently a fairly uh, fairly self-referential book. A lot of it is actually written from the perspective of the comic book artist working on the comic at a convention. So okay. a, lot of, a lot of the book is actually set in a con, and they're talking about making, making comics. <laughs> That's very cool. Uh, with like big like Where's Waldo kind of splash pages of stuff going on, which I'm going to show for the camera, but not for the audience, obviously. Uh, <laughs> just like there's so like tons of jokes going like kind of hidden hidden in there, um, and then you've got the actual Gru story, and then a separate Tarzan story that are drawn in different styles to sort of correspond to the type of book that they are in. And as of the end of this issue, they have not collided yet, but uh, the people who they interact with are going back and forth between it. And so you're starting to see those people in the different styles, like this, like um, this super cartoony style for Gru. And then you'll see the same like tribe of people like traveling through, and then they meet up with Tarzan and he's, and then all of a sudden those same people are in in these much more realistic kind of styles, which I was enjoying. Um, Yeah. Like I said, I don't have like a ton. It's the first issue of a crossover where the two people haven't actually met up yet. Um, but it was kind of a fun, like, I don't know, it felt, it felt like a throwback in both regards, like one to those, those like 80s, like ladies or early 90s, like creator own books uh, on the Gru side. And then the Tarzan side felt very much like, like a newspaper strip style, 
like like drama kind cool. of one, yeah. Uh, like if I'm explaining that one right, like like the way the like the Spider-Man uh, daily strip on in like newspapers, right. kind of has that like look and vibe to it. Like, uh, but I don't know. It, it was fun. I'm probably gonna pick up the next issue just to see. And uh, a lot of the the more meta moments set in the present day were really funny. Uh, lot lots of jokes about cosplayers and speaking as a cosplayer. <laughs> uh, I heard that, guys. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, I was glad that it like coming on the show prompted me to pick it up because it was uh, grew as just a property that I was always tangentially aware of, but never really could speak much to. So it's nice to try to support those kind of like uh, you know founding fathers of of indie comics. Absolutely, yeah, very cool. Moving over to DC and Action Comics number ten thirty three, we have part four of War World Rising, written by Philip Kennedy Johnson with art by Danielle Samperi, colors by Adriano Lucas, and letters by Dave Sharp. Uh, I'm not sure if there's ever anything quite as arresting as Superman staring dead into the panel and saying, I wasn't finished. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, I love that, like, Aquaman, like, gives basically his ultimatum and is walking out, right? Like, you know, his huge, like, you know, if this happens, da, 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 and starts walking out, and Superman's like, I wasn't finished. It's like, we, yeah, everybody just stops. <laughs> we, are, we are in the middle right now in action of what I would call sort of the perennial Atlantis plotline of the last <laughs> decade, at yes, least. So and I that. say the last decade because that is the limit of my experience reading comics regularly. Uh, Atlantis is mad at America and wants to go to war with the surface because Amanda Waller sent Suicide Squad members to try to go steal this, this alien power source that they have found. And that's what this Justice League meeting is about. It's about de-escalating and Superman wanting to go liberate slaves on Warworld. Uh, I kind of like this, this sort of political setting for a Superman book. Um... I think it's more interesting here in a way than if we did this again in Justice League. Because I think it's a little easier to ground sort of Superman versus Aquaman as almost emblematic of the bigger plotline without making it, you know, a book about Atlantis marching on the coast again. Well, and yeah, and I like that. The other piece of this that I like is that it is, it's very much saying, you know, Superman thinks that there are more important things to deal with than these nations who are posturing. So shut the fuck up and <laughs> yeah, let's it, let's it, get on. It explains why he's about to go to space and leave his son in charge. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, it it definitely felt like setting up for future state stuff. Uh, but but yeah, I think the nice part about this being focused around Superman is that we get to see the complexities of his point of view yep. mm -hmm. in this whole thing, yeah. as opposed to if it was Justice League. It would be, we're going to get a little bit of time with Atlantis, we'll get a little time with Batman talking to Waller, we'll get a little bit of time with Superman, and each one will be sort of like, here's my viewpoint and like a few supporting details. Whereas here we get to deal with like, with these like escaped slaves from uh, from War World, and we get to see their, like the complexities with their characters, and we get to have more background stuff. And we get to have what I felt was kind of a reference to uh, For the Man Who Has Everything at the very end. Uh, with Lois Lane, <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say one of the one of the things we get 
extending from from what you just said is by virtue of making this about superman and not the league it opens the door to also making this about lois Mm -hmm. and i think we get some great lois moments in here and one of the things that i absolutely love about this is like her her um her complete and total understanding that she is part of the house of l right like she's like yeah when you attack the house of l like it's like yes i and i love that like she is not taking any guff for them potentially threatening her family in any way yeah i mean how bruised do you think her hand is she gets slapped by a kryptonian and later we see is just like working around fine and like that's that's kind of badass yeah I mean, she might have had time to like get Kellex to use some Kryptonian healing magic, whatever, whatever the equivalent of a purple ray in the uh, Fortress of Solitude is. I feel like from Krypton it would be green, which you know. I don't know. It's not easy being green. I know. I know. I also want to take a moment to talk about the way the Suicide Squad is being used across DC books right now Mm -hmm. because this book sort of has cemented what feels like a trend at this point uh and it's a trend i like i am not we've talked about this before i am not historically a huge suicide squad person i loved tom taylor's run i mostly gave the current run a shot because i like robbie thompson Mm -hmm. and i'm really digging it but i like that the way as a line that DC is using the Suicide Squad is to bring them in here and there for an issue or two, let them kind of shake things up, not really spend a whole lot of time directly on what are their motives and what are they trying to do, but just sort of have them be this catalyst that shows up and disappears again. Because it feels true to their mission, but it also creates this sort of like line-wide Easter egg hunt for having read future state asking the question like okay what does this have to do with waller trying to conquer earth three yeah there are some villains that get used this way sometimes where they're just brought in to kind of either advance the plot or shake things you know alter the trajectory a little bit deathstroke is the one who comes to mind probably the most yeah right and i think in a lot of ways they're being used like that but I think in, a, in, in certainly in instances like this, right, where it is like, you know, nation versus nation kind of thing, like they fit that role much, much better. Well, and to me, the difference, I think, between what they're doing here in Deathstroke mm-hmm. is Deathstroke shows up. And I think this is probably true sometimes with like Deadshot, too. He's another mm-hmm. good example of this, absent the Suicide Squad. They show up as almost just plot device. Right, right. And I feel like the way across the line Suicide Squad is being deployed in this function is not just as plot device, but is also like seeding some puzzle pieces Mm -hmm. that will eventually be relevant again, I think at a pretty major level. Yeah, I think I didn't come across very well. My point was, yes, they are also being used as plot device, but in addition to that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. We are on the same page. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um. But yeah, because like the in this issue, it you could have very easily not had it be a thing. It could have just been like agents or any kind of like like special force kind of concept. Um. But to tie it into this larger world of superheroes is to sort of uh provoke us to to wonder how it all connects, how it all is being utilized. Right. Well, and. I, I, 
that and just kind of what you were, I think you were referencing earlier, Alec, is the the fact that Suicide Squad Squad right now is kind of scrambling to also figure out who they are and reestablish themselves because, you know, it's been so radically altered. Right. Yeah. Uh, we also had the next chapter of The Passenger in this issue, written by Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad, with art by Michael Avon Oming, colors by Takusoma, and letters by Dave Sharp. I enjoyed the uh, Mr. Miracle team-up in this one. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in the future state stuff, like we kind of see them intersect with each other, and then each go on and do their own thing, kind of working toward the same purposes. But I'm always a, a bit of a sucker for that very kind of Doctor Who, I've met you in the future, and you haven't met me yet, but you will, and here's what's going on. And we need to work together, even though you don't know me. Thing, I, I I feel like it gets played a lot lately, but I'm always a sucker for it. Yeah, I am too. I I love that. It is my favorite time shenanigan device. Is is the is the relationship? Yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it was great. I mean, there's a, there's a comic we'll talk about that's like almost the whole comic is that today. Yeah, uh, but uh, it, it was nice getting mm-hmm. that snippet and having just read the 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 superman future state trade which includes this whole story i was very happy to see it and be like okay cool we're seeing the other <laughs> side of that of, of their meeting in that one yeah yeah i mean it's still good i don't know <laughs> I don't have all, it's, yeah. it's a short story and there's you know yeah. it's very quick but uh midnight midnighter's great in this yeah icon and rocket season one number one written by reginald hudlin with pencils by doug braithwaite inks by andrew curry and scott hannah Colors by Brad Anderson, and letters by Andworld Design. I got some spice about this one. Yeah? Alright, so I recently reread the original Icon and Rocket run from the 90s, uh, because I was doing a video about it for the CPOV uh, Superman Analog series. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I don't this issue feels like a lesser counterpart to the first issue of that run. And I'm not trying to be like, oh, the comics back in the day, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it, it, the events are almost identical to the first two-thirds of that issue but slightly decompressed but i feel like it says less uh and aside from like going into some of the logistics of like how the space travel stuff works and so forth uh so i don't know i like it doesn't feel as like much of a shot in the arm to the franchise as like the static one uh has felt i think that's probably perfectly valid i have not read any of the original icon and rocket uh, and these are not characters I know super well. I, I really only know them from the other Milestone Returns sort of one-shot uh, that came out late last year, earlier this year, depending on what form you read it in. Mm-hmm. Um, I did dig this without any like previous knowledge of or attachment to. The, the thing that I did think was an interesting choice was actually, this is set before... Uh, the, the Milestone Returns one shot that showed the two of them already in action. I was surprised mm-hmm. to see it go back and sort of give us that first meeting. Yeah, this is almost an origin story. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious to see how long this arc spins on the origin story versus, like, going ahead and catching up to where they're at in that one shot. I think I'll enjoy it either way. Um, I really like the idea of this, this, 
I mean, Icon's very much a version of Superman who is also weighed down by the baggage of being a black man in America. Yeah. And having lived since the 1800s as a black man in America. And obviously he's traveled the world. We see some of that. Uh, But this idea of a tired Superman analog who is a little hopeless at first, I actually think that is interesting. Um, and again, like, like I said, I don't have the point of reference of that original run, but I'm, I'm here for like the concept. And I, I think it, that there's value in showing some of the, where does he start in their relationship? Well, especially since I get the impression that a big piece of this is going to be that she is what, for lack of a better word, re-energizes him to, yeah. right. To, to be who he yeah. is. Yeah. The only thing this is all like like I said it's th- this is all in the the original run too, um like it, it was very pointed that he is like in the original run they they make a whole deal about how he's become very conservative with his time and how she's sort of the thing that makes him open his eyes to like how just because he succeeded a bit um that the that black people in America have not and how like how the world has sort of started to beat down. And now that was the nineties where like, there was a lot of like racism is dead kind of rhetoric that was being thrown around, which is not the world of today. No. Uh, so there, so it, it would be much harder. You'd, you'd have to be living under a rock to sort of avoid some of that conversation uh, now. But yeah, like I said, it's, it's, I, I understand if you've never read the other, like the original material first, that this is perfectly fine. It's just so beat for beat. Sure. The exact same thing. That it, it really caught me off guard because, uh, like, like it's closer than even like Brian Michael Bendis's alternate Spider-Man like first couple of issues. Well, like, and it, I think it's real close. I think that is an interesting choice because the static origin has. I mean, it's the shape is the same, but the the specifics are different in a way that I think adds context. Uh, in in the the reboot uh that we're in in the middle of right now, static is still gassed but he is gassed at a black lives matter rally right and he's gassed with an experimental gas that hardware developed and had said this is not ready to go out and be used yet and then got used anyway and he's being basically set up to take a fall for so like the two of them hardware being the other book that will start in in august the third milestone book the two of them are tied into this very like contemporary event in a way that icon and rocket aren't so I think I don't I don't have any context for why that choice was made, but that may also be like part of what you're you're noticing is these two characters weren't given that same contemporary hook. Well, it also makes me wonder if if that was a choice specifically just for this kind of uh, the, like we said origin issue again. Right? Yeah. And if they quickly move beyond that, then, you know, maybe that changes yeah. as they get into what's actually happening, you know, quote, modern. Yeah, day. I mean, yeah. Uh, like, I'm going to keep picking up the book and, and like, I don't I don't mean to to like crap it on too much. Like, it's, you know, it's perfectly fine. It just it felt like it was less it was a less edgy version of the previous one without providing a whole lot of yeah. new uh, which just like caught me by surprise because like we spend a little bit more time on like the alien uh, 
like crash that occurs like it's um, in the in the original it was told that there's no word bubbles where, it, where it's left to be like kind of vague like you see the events but but you don't know all the context so you don't know everything about uh, about augustus and and his whole tri- like adventure like what like what he brought to the table before he comes to earth yeah um and then the art is a little bit uh, more conventional superhero art whereas like there there was a little bit more of sort of like abstraction going on in the original run uh, the only weird thing about the art that I noticed here is that Icon came. This is this is a weird point a point on a conversation of three very white people. Icon is very uh, is much more light skinned in this, where it's like one of the interesting details of the comic was that he was dr- dramatically dark skinned because of the the genetic imprint he took, huh. um, which f- felt like a choice because like part of it is like coloring techniques in in paper, but it was like a, an effort to make him really feel like he's had that experience yeah um and the 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 the, the light washing kind of aspect I, like i don't want to go too deep on this because like i said i'm very white, sure but it, it but as a book that was always about trying to be an icon for black americans for uh, uh like to be a superman who actually can speak to that experience and goes through that all and you know in the first issue of the original run uh he shows up in costume for the first time and the police surround him because they don't trust him automatically yeah um like that, that there was supposed to be that kind of conversation going on to make him less of that sort of standpoint. Like the original costume has like a lot of like African art details going on with it. And it's very busy and I'm, I'm fairly happy with the update, but the update is more of a conventional superhero costume. It is smoother. It is. And it, it feels like there's a lot of those elements going on in this book. Gotcha. Well, yeah. I can see. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I will say like the thing that I dug the most in the milestone returns that I'm hopeful is what we start to see as this goes on is as the two of them start actually traveling and, uh, the, the context for the, the crime they were fighting in, in milestone returns was dealing with, uh, drug growing operations. The detail that I love the most from that story that is stuck in my head is whenever they go to a new country, like. Icon takes Rocket for, like, the best food he knows of in that country. And, like, to see the sights and to see the unique things in that country. There's a certain, like, joy for life and travel and, like, experiencing culture that was in that one shot that, like, I hope is where we get to here. Um, yeah, I would like that. Um, he, he seems much more heroic in his alien form uh than necessarily we got in the in the original like in the original they make a point that it was almost like a like a cruise ship that went down yeah uh and so <laughs> pardon. so like the the like he was just a passenger on that ship and like he just kind of likes to travel yeah <laughs> and see stuff yeah this had almost like a beta ray bill vibe in a way yeah yeah all right all right let's talk about infinite frontier number 3 this is written by Josh Williamson with pencils by Paul Pelletier, Jesus Marino, Tom Derenick, and Hermanico, with inks by Norm Rapman, Raul Fernandez, Tom Derenick, and Hermanico, colors by Romulo Fayardo Jr., and letters by Tom Napolitano. I, I, I love all the Justice Society stuff. Talk going yeah. On. Yeah. Like, that's probably my, my favorite part of this, I'll be honest like, with you. It is so, I've said this before, but it is so good to see those characters in this world when, because of when I started reading comics, like, they were not very present, certainly not in Earth Zero, and they've always felt like they were missing in a way. Sure, it's because I know they're not there, 
But I feel like there's a fundamental contradiction in trying to update continuity and disconnect like the A-list characters from sort of the historical contexts that they were created in without having the Justice Society in some form to ground them or to ground storytelling in that. Like, and I know that's part of the reason for the, the creation of the Justice Society in the first place, right? Was to keep a foot in that world. But it's so good to have all these characters back. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was a huge, huge fan of, like, Infinity Inc. back in the day when it first came out. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. yeah, that's what I really wanted to bring up. Like, the fact that that's getting all the love. Because it, it's easy to be like, oh, here's the foundations of, of DC Comics. Like, don't you respect the Golden Age Green Lantern for having the most garish costume they could imagine at the time. <laughs> and that's, I, that's like a, a paraphrase of his line when he's like, I'll, I'll wear a, the, the, the most wild costume or something to that effect. Uh, like, it's so weird. But, you, you know, you kind of just love those those classic things because they feel like the foundation. But uh, but Infinity Inc., it was such a, a, a interesting uh, take on it all. That, of course, was a Roy, a Roy Thomas baby. Yeah. Like, well... On Earth too, they they all had kids. What what would they be like? And we get Jade. I'm so happy to bring oh, back Jade. Me too. <laughs> Jade has always been one of my favorites. Yes. Uh, like I said, I, I'll be honest. I would love to see somebody take a crack at doing an Infinity Ink book again. I mean, this, especially the last page of this issue, really makes it feel like something we're probably going to see oh, in the near future. Oh, oh, be so mm-hmm. good. I mean, it would not shock me if. When this series is over, Joshua Williamson writes an Infinity Inc. book. Dreams, baby, dreams. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, mean, I would be all about that. The only, the only weird part with Infinity Inc., though, is that, like, because it was built around a world of the all the superheroes came out in the 40s, right. and these are their kids, yeah. you, you know, it feels like, it, like, in a world where it's, like, all merged together, it's always been a little more awkward. That's why, like, all, so many of them, like, slowly migrated to the Justice League after... Uh, crisis on infinite earths occurred mm-hmm. because it was like well why is it a separate team like it made sense when there was no justice league to join up with like they were on a different planet right uh but i do love all those characters and that like that's sh- uh that last page where you know we've got adam smasher <laughs> we've got jade we've got power girl uh we, is that the adam or is that cyclotron uh i think it's cyclotron i think it's supposed to be like i don't know i don't uh, know but it's such a group of heavy yeah. hitters right there. And obviously Wildcat too, as well, but, you know, she's not in the same weight class <laughs> as a, a, a woman who has a Green Lantern ring in her genetic code. Right, yeah, who and, is a Green Lantern <laughs> ring, yes. Yeah, and, and a daughter of Krypton. Yeah, yeah very, God, oh, I love it. I love it so much. Jade is such a <laughs> badass. We also have a uh, uh, character who I was surprised to see show up. Mostly because, one, uh-huh. I'm always surprised to see this character show up, because I think in the pantheon of DC villains, he is one of the most forgettable, uh, and that is not helped by the Green Lantern movie. <laughs> no. Oh, yeah. Uh, Hector Hammond. Hector Hammond. Like, of all the people to show up, Hector Hammond is here, and, like, actually, I think, used pretty well. Yeah, and I love yeah. he's like he's like, I didn't recognize you. He's like, yeah, when everything got reset, I did, too. And because, like, you know, he doesn't have his giant forehead. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was a very effective use of one of these, like, reality warping kind of situations mm-hmm. where memories are still shared. But, like, like you said, he gets he gets the factory reset. And so he's able to, like, walk up to a superhero who sure, should certainly know who he is. And they don't recognize him. 
be, because of that it's it's a great use of that like uh the the, the clandestine nature, or the power of, of being clandestine yeah. well and i also love his his charge here right because essentially his mission is to round up people who have come back from the dead. And it feels like this is kind of becoming a concept with gravity in DC right now. Because not only is this at the core of Infinite Frontier, but we get in October a series called Task Force Z that is all about characters who have died and come back to life and i don't know exactly where that's going although having someone running around with a, a black lantern ring maybe raises some alarms <laughs> mm -hmm. but i think it's interesting that part of part of the question of how do we handle this reboot is this sort of slow burn of what does it mean to have died and come back or to be dead and reset and where do you go from there? What is your place? Or like, I think it's it's in a textual way trying to tackle the what do we do with all these characters who Dan DiDio hated? <laughs> yeah. um, or who just for whatever reason never found enough traction during the New 52 and Rebirth to like not get written out or thrown across universes or trapped between universes or killed or whatever. Like... The last time we saw Power Girl, she was trapped between universes with the other Power Girl, and yeah. like we we haven't heard a word about either of them until, uh, oh, what's the name of the new Power Girl? Tanya. Roberts? Tanya. No, ta not Tanya Roberts. Tanya. Um. Uh, I can't remember her last name. Uh, but Tanya showed up in one yeah. of the Future State books. Right. So, like, we still don't know how all of them come back how the two of them in particular come back and i don't know if we ever totally will get that answer beyond just diana died for all of us to live well wait they were trapped between universes uh she shows up this power girl shows up in the bleed the space between universes okay maybe i mean there's no story maybe... maybe maybe it's just like oh yeah here we are okay yeah that's that's fair um that maybe it may be that simple well, and obviously we've got all this multiverse stuff going on too, right? Yeah. Which um, necessitates traveling through the bleed, so. Right. Yeah. Also, how, like, kind of terrifying is it that Hector Hammond has access to the bleed and that Bones and the new DEO are mucking around with stuff like that? Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. I'm trying to remember. So the, the, the DEO, their new thing is anyone who is dead and come back to life or anyone who is coming from another of the multiverses, right? That seems to be the case. Yes. yes. I mean, I'm excited about yeah, it's this. It's interesting. Both it feels like both Marvel and DC have kind of embraced that the level of super science at play in their respective worlds means that like kind of Earth is no longer terrestrial bound. Like Earth agencies are now just in space because it makes sense that they, they would have access to spaceships yeah. because there have been so many that have come to Earth. I mean, at some point they got it. Hector Hammond and I thought this while reading it and I'm thinking it again now is basically Henry Peter Gyrick. Like, they are sort mm -hmm. of analogous to each other at the moment. Could be, yeah. They oh, are, right. they yeah, are dicks in, in space. Of Alpha, yeah. Alpha flight. Dicks <laughs> in space! Nice. I knew if I said it, one of you would do it. Mm, very nice. <laughs> um, yeah, and let's not forget the, uh, it's only like two pages or something here, but uh, Psycho Pirate and Flash. I wanted to yep. mention that. Because... Oh, I don't like the, I don't like the thought of that either. No, but also like I'm very excited to see yeah, what Williamson yeah, does yeah, with yeah. it. But no, 
Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, very excited. I, I, I love this book and where it's going and I, I think what it's trying to do. Cause that's part of it is, is it's constantly shifting so fast that like, it's kind of hard to predict its trajectory here. Well, and more and more like, my read is this is going to spend six issues asking a lot of questions mm-hmm. and probably setting up some new status quo. Yeah. But I don't think this is going to be the kind of book that pays off in an immediate way beyond yeah. making you excited for what comes next. Exactly. Yeah, it is It is as clearly a series designed to set up stories for the future. It, it reminds yeah. me of Empire. Mm-hmm. I say foreshadowing a later conversation in this episode. <laughs> yes. For now, though, yeah. The Other History of the DC Universe, number five, written by John Ridley, with layouts by Giuseppe Camoncoli, finishes by Andrea Cucci, colors by Jose Villarubia, and letters by Steve Wands. We are up to the aughts and Anissa Pierce. Yeah, this is the final final issue of this, at least initial run. We don't know if there'll be more or not, but... Um, man, this one was even more so than the Jefferson Pierce one. Mm -hmm. This one to me felt like it was trying to provide you a lot more insight. Yes, I think that's true. And I think there's, I think there that Anissa Pierce is a very smart choice for the final chapter of this. Mm hmm. Because of the ways that her story allows John Ridley to reflect on the series as a whole. Yeah. And how kind of everything connects in a very intersectional way. Yeah. And also sort of play with some variations on theme. Um, Just as a a reminder, we had a Jefferson Pierce issue. Mm -hmm. A Tetsu issue about Katana. Um... We had an issue about the Duncans. Right. The we Duncans, had yeah. one about uh, 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 Renee Montoya. Montoya. And mm-hmm. finally, Anissa Pierce. And Anissa has so many qualities of these other characters she, and connections to these other characters. She's kind of, in a way, all of their all of their viewpoints in the same person, right? Like, we see we see very intentionally like the other side of parts of the story that Ridley mm-hmm. told about Jefferson Pierce. Right. Um as a way of like creating context for her and just the small portion of conversations she saw with his former student that like made her afraid to come out to him. Mm-hmm. Which reflects a little bit the Renee Montoya story and her not coming out and her waiting a long time to like embrace that part of who she was. We see mention of Karen and Mal Duncan. We see, uh, we see kind of the idea that sort of, sort of was introduced with them too, of like, there is no, there is no Supergirl for black heroes. There is no Superman for black heroes other than maybe black lightning. Uh, but who they didn't get along very well with initially mm-hmm. either. Um, we see the connection to to Tatsu and yep. the idea that like she became this role model for for Anissa, right? And like all of these other elements and beats and ideas feel like they're coming to a head in the same way that sort of politically it became okay to talk about things in the aughts, right? In a way that had not been before. Yeah. Well, I I was going to point out that is one of the things that I think this one has that some of the others don't is just the the time setting of it, right? 
mm-hmm. is it's what brings all of those kind of into the modern discussion of today. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that, because each of these is set in a different time period, I think, I actually think you get a little bit of that too in the Renee Montoya. You do. Which I, I know yeah. you haven't had a yeah. chance right. to read yet. Yeah. Um, but this very much feels like a capstone without actually changing the formula a lot. There's no, it's never on the nose or heavy handed. It's just very much a, it's like the last movement of a symphony, right? It takes all the ideas and all the themes and combines them in a way that like says something new. Yeah. (laughs) How much do you love how much shade she throws at at Roy and uh, Dick? (laughs) (laughs) in. Immeasurably. I love it immeasurably. It is it is excellent. The man boys, yes. Um I, I still think my favorite line is and then I met Batman and I immediately forgave Dick yes, for all see, of it. I was gonna say that, yes. Uh, <laughs> yep. Yeah. I love that she didn't take any shit from Batman either though. No. That was wonderful. Um and like it still kind of anchors the whole thing around the outsiders for the most part. Like the craft of the storytelling in this and making mm-hmm. all these pieces fit is just incredible. Like, I know we gush about every issue because it's that well executed, but this really, like, sticks the landing in a way I didn't even think about being possible. Yeah, yeah, very, very much. There is, I think it's in August, there is a hardcover that is collecting all of these. If you have not read these and have any even thoughts of or desires of it that would be a fantastic way because having all of these in one book like that would be pretty damn yeah. amazing i mean i'm probably going to pick up the hardcover just to have a copy on my shelf yeah that i can yeah. get to easily yep so good ruby justice league number four <laughs> you two have fun yeah this is uh <laughs> this is us going back i i guess i should point out uh let's see uh it is written by marguerite bennett uh pencils by emanuela uh Lupacino, uh, and inks by Wade Von Grobager. Uh, oh, colors by Hi-Fi. I forgot about that. And letters by Gabriella Downey. Um, this is, again, this was a, a series that came out digital first. So we are now uh, up to issue four, uh, which I think there's probably going to be one more after this. Um uh, to to wrap the yeah, series, yeah, it feels up. like it's coming to a head. Yeah. But essentially, in this one, we get introduced to two more of our um, DC transplants into the Ruby universe. Aquaman, I feel, fits pretty well in this universe. Yeah. I mean, especially yeah, that he he's a he's a shark animus, right? Yeah, Faunus, 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 yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and then his semblance is low level te- uh, telepathy, which is kind of perfect, yes. and it. It, it worked. I actually really like it, the version here where the telepathy is works on everyone, not just fish, but specifically fish are where he has like more more success and effects with, right. um, with which they've played with in the main books or in like the the regular DC books. But it was just like, yeah, yeah, no, the telepathy isn't like restricted artificially to fish. It's just like that's what I had the most the connection with. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like it, it's these parts of the brain which are bigger on fish. Yeah. I I really I, I enjoyed that very much. The other character we get we get here is um, uh, a Green Lantern, right? Which is um, yep. uh, Jessica. Yeah. yeah, and uh, I I again I I kind of love 
both of these characters. And I, I think we say this every time, but it's just fun seeing how they interact with, with this world and the characters that we love from Ruby. Yeah. A couple of call outs on this one. Yeah. Uh, when Aquaman meets uh, the group, specifically he meets uh, Yang and Blake, mm-hmm. uh, he tries to flirt with them. And then we have, I think the most Canon so far confirmation of uh, team Bumblebee, uh, which is the shipping name for Yang and Blake, uh, where it's like, <laughs> uh, she's way out of your league. And then there's like a get it. And there's like a very like pointed kind of, like smile and so forth, where it's definitely implying that relationship, which I I stand for. <laughs> yes, like I'm happy to see that. Yes, yeah. I, th- there's definitely some um, intentional flirtations between them during this series. I'll say that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I really like the way that they used the the Superman character in this. Um, oh, shock! Case likes the Superman. Character. <laughs> um, they, uh, so specifically, they, he has like a Birdman style like restriction on solar on his solar power. Yeah. Like the sun literally has to be on him for him to have his powers, right. uh, which sometimes is like kind of a, kind of like, Oh, that, well, that's weird. But like in this setting yep. where everyone's powers kind of have those like very specific type of restrictions to sort of balance it out, uh, worked really well here because there's a lot of fights at night. And then as the sun is rising, he's all of a sudden able to really like pitch in and help out. And I thought that was a good dynamic for the character in this kind of a team. Setting. Me too. Me too. Like in a solo book, it'd be frustrating as hell unless, unless you really wanted to write around that. Uh, But in a team book like this, it gives him moments where he can't participate and then moments where he can shine. Pardon the pun. (laughs) (laughs) And like you said, especially given the rules that we have for this world, it really does fit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he feels extremely young. Like you, like they, this feels like a young justice book more than like a justice league book or, or rather a justice league babies book like they're they all feel like teenagers justice babies (laughs) we'll save the world for you (laughs) yeah it's like even like even younger than like i'll be actually if you go back to the 70s the the very original teen titans book like that age right like yeah like like freshman in high school yeah vibe for these characters definitely um but I, I, yeah. yeah, not a lot else to say about it. I mean, the what I said last time sort of holds for this as well, which is this is a nice period in the the run it for is, Ruby. Yeah. So we're seeing some characters who we don't get to see anymore in the in the series yep. uh, for reasons, um, which is nice. <laughs> it we, is. We don't we don't get the action like the again. The, one of the big selling points on on the animated cartoon is that. The, the actual fight animation is so yep. good and the stylized, the, like the visual effects of it all are, are really like aesthetically pleasing. And neither of those are here because it's, it's a different medium. So I would love if they made this into like every part of this, I would love if, if it became animated on, on paper. It's, it's fine. Like I'm enjoying it, yeah. but you know, it's like, it's missing that it, thing that I really it, love about Ruby. It, it's, it's missing one part. of the things that make Ruby special. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Also, no, no rock and music score, which Thanks, is yeah, that's like, fair. You know, yeah, that's very cool it's, too. It's such a weird reversal. Like, I, I know it's not the first time to be like, oh, well, this is a cartoon that I'm re- now reading as a comic, as opposed to a thing that had roots that then went on and to be a, a, a like a movie or a cartoon and then go yeah. back, um, like a Ninja Turtles, for example. Right. Uh, but it, it really does feel like stuff that's like part of the DNA is like missing from this particular series. I know, I know exactly what you're saying. It is fun, but it is, it is, it is not all of either one of these. Yeah. 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 Let's talk about static season one, number two. 
written by Vita Ayala with layouts by Chris Cross, finishes and colors by Nicholas Draper Ivy, and letters by Andworld Design. I love this book. All right. <laughs> yeah, everything I said about Icon and Rocket, the exact opposite here. Like this is taking the like what what like the the essence of the character and updating it appropriately, tying it into this world and god damn it, if Static doesn't become DC Spider-Man, I'd like I I'm going to flip a table. Like <laughs> that, like archetypally he's that position as it is. It's so perfect the way his powers work where it's it's all about like all right, we you've got electric powers now actual science to do the solutions to all your problems yeah like that's yeah. the cool part about the character it's the same thing that the flash was supposed to be but we eventually got lost in the whole like religious aspect of the speed force where it was like no no if you use friction to create this kind of heat we can bend this kind of light and you can deal with the laser that right. way like it, it should be like a science lesson every issue on top of cool action and that's what this <laughs> is doing the art is beautiful it's so good i really love this issue the the other thing i love is i love the the position they're putting him in, which is very, very much like teenager figuring out identity, you know, and then essentially also this additional superhero aspect, you know, powers part of it. But it is very different from like, I think it's funny that you mentioned it from Peter Parker, right? Mm -hmm. From Peter Parker, it was all kind of that teen angst about that with him. It's, you know, he still has his parents and they have very strong opinions about what he should and shouldn't do. Right. So with yeah. him, it's almost more about uh, that finding your own identity. Right. And it also being making decisions about what that means in regards to your powers. I also think there's something really interesting in that context about the way he handles having a secret identity, which is to say, like, he's actually not very guarded around people he's close to about it. There's never a moment where he's like, oh, no, I shouldn't let my my parents right. see me use electricity to put out the fire in the house because they might know I have superpowers. It's like, no, let me save the house. Let me save my family. Yeah. Yeah. He He only becomes guarded when it becomes a matter of, like, shifting the narrative around the gas usage or becoming like a national news story and like not being able to do anything as a person because of that attention. Right. It's a very different sort of big picture calculus as opposed to just like trying to hide it from all his friends and family. Well, it feels much more real world about like it would literally be impossible to create a real secret identity, right? Yeah. And this is like kind of the real world, like it's going to happen and people are going to know, but you do what you can to curb the biggest impingements on that. Yeah. Like, you know, frying your, your old friend's cell phone, who's trying to live stream an interview with you. <laughs> yeah. Which is just mm -hmm. like, dude, don't be that guy. <laughs> old friend. Don't, don't, don't put your friends uh, in Darius. that position. Darius. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of lot of classic names for everyone here with Virgil and Darius. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know, I know. Case already mentioned how good the art is, but I can't not talk about Nicholas Draper Ivy. Mm. I love what he's doing and the like anime manga influence that he brings in as like a tool set, but he he it still feels like a Western comic at the same time. Like it feels like he's pulling all these different influences to do exactly what he wants. Yeah. I love following him on Twitter, seeing process about like how he, how he balances influences and like how he designs all these characters and different 
period references from like his childhood that he pulls in and then updates to look more contemporary. And the differences in the color palettes, depending on what's going on. Like mm-hmm. there's one scene where he's like talking to somebody on the phone and there's like this blue sky with clouds in the background. And it's mm-hmm. just this bright, like it feels like you're outside on a sunny day. It's the colors are so bright on that page. And then like two pages later, he's telling this part about the ceremony that's going on. That's all dark with these flames and reds. And like, it's just, it's, oh, it, it, yeah. the, the colors very much pull you into the mood of what's being discussed. And Any I love conflict that. a character feels gets reflected, reflected tonally on the page. Yes. Yeah. I love it. Like, this yeah, is a great, great, great book. Yeah. It's a very effective uh, way of like telling your character, like, Static always has this like yellow accent, whatever he's wearing, um, that always that always contrasts the like the page really well, like the blue sky scenario. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, like we our eyes drawn to Static because he's got this like yellow hoodie uh, that just like pops in that scene. Well, and yellow, I think very intentionally is for the most part not used much elsewhere, right? And yeah. that way you can always kind of pull that, and I like it. Yeah. And I'm always here for like a a street clothes superhero, like someone who has like more casual wear but with like superhero accents kind of going on and like static has always had that vibe and i think it's updated really well here well i i i like the way and this is something that that draper ivy's talked about on twitter too like there are all these different costumes for static and versions of static that people know at this point more than really more than any other milestone character and he kind of wants to like reference all of them in the mm-hmm. same way that sort of he's talked about, you'll probably never see me draw Virgil's hair the same way twice because, like, what he has to do that day is going to influence what he does with it or how tired he is or how much time he has, all of those factors. You get all these different elements of sort of classically recognizable static costumes that are updated in their own right, but then are also kind of, like, mixed and matched. So, like, he may not be in the exact same costume or or wearing pieces that reference costumes over and over, but, like, you always recognize this element or that element, or he always looks at some very basic level, like, a version of Static. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of like if you had a character customizer in a video game and all the individual parts and pieces, like, not not necessarily as chaotic as just hitting a randomized button, but the kind of freedom to pick and choose those pieces. <laughs> Here you go. I don't know if you yeah. guys will remember this at all. It's the Granimals of Static Superheroes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I forget if it was in this issue or something that he tweeted recently, but making the, the X ball cap canon in this book was like an achievement he checked off on his checklist recently. Very cool. Let's move on to Superman, Son of Kal-El, number one. Written by Tom Taylor, art by John Timms, colors by Gabe Eltabe, and letters by Dave Sharp. Case. As our resident Superman expert, render judgment. (laughs) I mean, it's a given. It's Tom Taylor. Brian and I are both going to be like, good, good book. Good, good boy. So good. (laughs) Uh, I enjoyed this a lot. I, I, I love the opening bit about the actual birth of john uh that felt very <laughs> it felt very appropriate and since like i'm also watching superman and lois right now which is kind of dealing with similar kind of uh story elements with uh in that the twins mm-hmm. 
it was nice to see how the Justice League is handling all of this. Like to the to the point where it's like, no, we're gonna we have there's an alien invasion, attempted alien invasion. It's not as important. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yes, it's attempted. We've got it under control. Yeah, like no, Diane is going to be down with Lois because like this is also very important. We need yeah. <laughs> we need to deal with that. Batman, I can deal with an attempted invasion and also keep an eye out for you guys. <laughs> yep. Uh, and then Batman drops the like his unique physiology. He's half Kryptonian, half human. That uh, he could be more than Clark, uh, which I I enjoy in general. I never really dig when it's just like a, a like a crude math. Like oh, he's half human, so he's half as powerful kind of vibe. Right. I, I always find that like just like unsubtle and unnuanced in terms of like discussions of like the, the science romance that is supposed to be going on in a Superman book. Yeah. Uh, and and I dig that. I mean, it, it kind of feels like Gohan from from Dragon Ball Z, <laughs> where it's like, oh, the hybrid's actually more powerful. Yeah. There's a there's a um, great practical example in like the last issue of Superman, uh, where John has more specific control over like the wavelength of of yeah. eye beam that mm -hmm. he can shoot. So like he can deal with this threat that Clark can't because like he can pinpoint this specific light wave weakness yeah i dug scenarios like that where like maybe clark has more raw power but like jonathan has better control because of those like kind of xyz yeah. factors going yep. on uh, i really enjoyed that i really enjoyed uh how john then handled his like the situation that we opened oh, with, like this big fire. before we move on from that opening scene i want to point out uh tom taylor being just <sighs> obnoxiously clever and smart he has the uh, the one dialogue balloon about how how Clark could hear two heartbeats, and he just kept listening and waiting. That's a callback to the first few issues, or in print, the first issue of Injustice. There are three panels in issues like one and three that are... Superman telling Bruce, I heard its heartbeat, oh, Bruce. Right. And then at the end of, of two or three, uh, and then I heard two heartbeats coming from one person. It's Lois. It's Lois. Stop beating. And you have that moment in this issue where it's like, we heard two heartbeats, and then Lois is like, it's all worth it to me. Whatever happens, I'm just ready to meet him. I, I feel like that had to be an intentional callback that, I don't know. Unless you've recently read or reread Injustice, you probably won't catch. But I, I love that it's there. I forgot about it, but yeah, as soon as you mentioned, I'm like, oh crap, yeah, <laughs> that was a huge thing. Yeah, I mean, that was a big, big, you know, plot point. And yeah, is that he lost hearing the heartbeat? Yeah, uh, yeah. Sorry, case. I just wanted to. No, wanted I just haven't read Injustice, so I didn't catch that. So. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, that, that that's fine. Um. Because I'm I'm glad to find more of those things going on in this because I I did really enjoy this issue, um, but uh, like I said I haven't read Injustice so I'm not yeah. going to pick up well, on call. And it's to it. it's worth noting too like Injustice actually predates John's creation. Uh, there's a point in Injustice where we see an alternate timeline where Superman and Lois did have their child, and it's not John. It's actually Lara Lane, uh, Lara Lane Kent, um, who maybe one of the like flashpoint supergirl designs is based on for the the upcoming film so like that nod is there but that that version was never going to be john just in case anyone's 
really curious about how that timeline shakes out. John was created like a uh, two and a half years later. Yeah. yeah. Getting back to Case's point though about this first event that John that he de- he deals yes. with. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I am one hundred percent. I think I know where you were going, and that is the way that he dealt with this, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, like using invulnerability specifically to allow him to be a calming influence on a on a meta. Like, it it felt very much like scenes that we see with like X Men books all the yep. time, where mutant power kicks in and it's like kind of crazy, and an X Men shows up to really deal with it. Like, um, it it wasn't this week, but like a new mutants issue had a very similar kind of scene. Uh just this month uh and it those are good moments and i think superman of any version of superman as sort of the the prototypical superhero Mm -hmm. acting as that voice of reason and calm uh for people who are scared about their powers felt very appropriate for the character uh and uh you know anyone with fire powers is going to by by its very nature risk losing control even if even if you have perfect control of the power coming off of you it's very easy to set something on yeah. fire yeah uh, and and this character seemed to be getting more and more extreme uh so i liked the way he handled it i liked the uh, the narration having like this faster than fate as powerful as hope yada 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 kind of bits um i just reread the uh, the dc 1 million uh arc from the 90s uh, for JD's show Comics Quest, because uh, we were doing Morrison Quest, and uh, th- those issues just feel like they should have been issues of JLA. <laughs> uh, and in that, there's like all this rhetoric about this the Superman of the 853rd century being faster than a speeding tachyon and more powerful, I think, than like a gravity well, or like you know all these like uh, all this hyperbole that that's sort of changing it. And I like that the way they're setting up John specifically as the person who has inherited his father's power and gusto and so forth, but has this human touch goes from being like literal or or goes from having powers that are being compared to literal forces to metaphorical ones. Um, It, it changes the nature of the character from being like a showboaty kind of, it's like, ha, like the, the train's going to come off the tracks. I'll hold it all together to being more of like, we're going to do this as a team. I'm, I'm going to show you the way because I am, I'm not from an alien world. I am from this world just being touched by by the beyond. Yeah. And we as we as a society are going to rise up together and I am just the vanguard. The... Well, a, a great part of that is the introduction that Wonder Woman gives to this scene, which is where, you know, Batman and Batman has just said, you know, he could be more than than Clark. And she says, mm-hmm. regardless of his powers, he will have the compassion of Superman, the fierce commitment of Lois Lane. He could be anything. Right. Well, and it's and... just that introduction that he is kind of the best of both of them. Yeah. yeah. I like too, and obviously like right wing news has already gotten their knickers in a twist about this, but we finally get like what feels like a reasonable and consistent, I hope successor to truth, justice in the American way, truth, justice in a better world for all, which feels aspirational in that same kind of conceptual way that case mentioned but also feels participatory, right? A better Mm. world for all implies, like, anyone can do something about this, and I am just, like, helping create this space and lead this push. Yeah. And if that's not Superman, I don't know what is. Yeah. Right. Well, and the whole whole thought of, if you want a better world, you have to think about the world. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yes. So... Uh, then we have the scene of him talking all this through with Damien. Yeah. 
which uh, I also recently reread uh, the opening arc for The Tick back from like 1991 or whatever, <laughs> uh, which is A Night of a Million Gazillion Ninjas. Yes. And it felt, it had very similar vibes yes. to that, where it's just like, those darn ninjas, they're wacky. <laughs> well, well, like, yeah, there's one where he's, because he's letting Damien take these guys out. He's just standing there, and there's like one scene where Damien's fighting, da, 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 and he's just standing there, and the star just goes, tink, and just hits him and bounces off. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And then, um, I gotta say, this this does have my quote of the week. Brian's quote of the week. Quote, quote. So they're doing this, and this one ninja tries to kick him, and John just grabs him and holds him by the foot, and the ninja goes, hey, this hardly seems like a fair fight. And John goes, a fair fight? You tried to ambush and assassinate my best friends. Uh, also, aren't ninjas supposed to be silent? I shouldn't hear you complain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so lots of good there yeah. uh it, it was starting to it, it gave damien a good voice in this all mm-hmm. like i i get their vibe um he does seem crazy but that's appropriate for a batman a wayne should be crazy yeah. i feel like that makes sense i mean there is nothing more batman than we're not talking about my problems <laughs> right yes <laughs> But, uh, and yeah there were definitely moments where it was just like yep that's Bruce's <laughs> well uh, what i love is I, I love some of the recent movements they've made in damien's character mm-hmm. to do the same kinds of things they're doing with john right which is make him his own person that has all of this legacy without it defining who he is yeah 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 yep yeah i really like this that this now we're actually getting the the son of Superman and Batman stories that used to be like uh, imaginary stories or then like later Elseworlds kind of stuff. We're actually getting it in the main books and like giving it room to breathe where there isn't a like it's not like Superman Batman generations where it's like, well, but we have to tell the tale of how Superman's son goes crazy when he loses his powers or how the daughter of Superman and the son of Batman were going to get married and there's tragedy involved. Like, uh, it's nice that we can just like let it be an ongoing book and sort of explore their relationship as they grow older. And it's not just restricted to, Oh, isn't it cute to have stories about them being lads, uh, superhero lads together. (laughs) Well, and uh, I I don't know if I'm the only one that picked up on this. Uh, Have you noticed they have very subtly aged Damien a bit? It does. It does feel Mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. 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 And not, and I don't think it's like, you know, to put him back at the same age that Clark, but it's it too to bring him back up towards that parody well, of of where they can relate to each other again, I think is what it is. I think a little yeah, bit yeah. of it is art style. It is. It is. Um, but I, I saw, I forget if it was Josh Williamson or Tom Taylor. It was either the writer for this or the writer for Robin. Yeah. Uh, who mentioned they actually still canonically have the same age difference they did before. John is just on the other side of it. Right, right. Well, but my point being that we're seeing Damien, because, I mean, he's literally right in the middle of right. adolescent growth spurt, right? I think we're seeing him, those changes take effect to bring them more to what oh, yeah. seems yeah. like parody, right? Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I also want to want to mention the art team here, uh, just because standing in the comic shop talking to folks every now and then someone, because I'm in there, I usually hang out for a while when I go in and some of the regulars know me and we'll talk a little bit. And I got the question this week. So like, what's the first book you're going to read when you get home? I'm like, it's going to be Superman. And the guy who asked picks up a copy and starts flipping through. And he's like, Oh, this is like perfect art for a Superman book. 
Mm-hmm. And I feel that way about yeah. both this and action right now. Mm-hmm. But I love this art team for this book. John Timms and Gabe Eltabe are just a great fit, both tonally and like kind of conceptually for Superman. Yeah. Especially kind mm-hmm. of a younger Superman. I was going to say, especially a new young Superman. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else before we move on? Uh, no. I think we've addressed most of it. I, I just really liked it. I mean, I like, I, I'm always a sucker for a, a Superman one parody cover or not parody, but like, homage homage yeah. Cover. yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's always nice. Very cool. Uh, yeah. I mean, John's costume is still too busy. He's, I, I case, think but... in issue two or three, he gets a new one. That's a little, a little cleaner. You know what though? I, I, I kind of had the same idea and then I thought about it, but like, isn't that what uh, uh, like a young new hero would do is try to make it. <laughs> too much a little bit right mm-hmm. it, yeah it's fine like i it didn't stop me from reading this book and it like the, the art looked great he looked fine and then i think i liked it more than i've liked it at any point up until this yeah. point uh in in this issue but it, you know it's just there's a lot of lines and a lot of a lot of detail yeah. Yeah. yeah wonder woman black and gold number two uh we're gonna do the same thing we always do pick a couple of favorites case do you have any in mind uh let's see so the the last story uh where she's talking with cersei yes. i thought that was a lot of fun this is the acquaintance uh, especially... with uh words and art by rachel smith and letters by becca carey yeah so uh, especially with the twist at the very end that the the person she's trying to free from being a uh was it a hamster or a gerbil so, yeah is is superman which i just thought was a nice I, detail i i liked that too because my steve trevor hating heart was sitting here going if this is steve that motherfucker and then it was superman i was like okay no this is fine like as long as it was gonna be batman or superman or someone like that i'm here for it just don't make me think about steve yeah so that that was like kind of a cute like low stakes kind of story there i like Um, the art style in that one the kind of almost like almost like children's book storybook kind of vibe yeah yeah so that that one stood out to me Probably the most of all of these. I dug a common motivator as well, which is uh, the the Wonder Woman Nubia versus Artemis yep. and unnamed other Banna Magdalian Amazon. Uh, My only objection is like basically Artemis has started to become the Guy Gardner of the Amazon set, and <laughs> it, it was like a little <laughs> like I get it, but I also like Artemis more. Yeah, so I'm like oh, we don't need to. We don't need her to be like the thing that they're that they're gonna hate work out for. <laughs> yeah, that's I'll never dislike her as much as Guy Gardner. Uh <laughs> Common Motivator is written by Stephanie Williams with art by Ashley A. Wood, letters by Becca Carey. Uh which it's it's sort of a biathlon kind of competition. Each each team has two members and each one does a different leg of this this competition, and we get uh, I like that we end up getting Artemis Nubia rather than Artemis Diana. Like, I like that matchup. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the amount of shade. Both both Nubia and Diana, and honestly Artemis too, like, they all throw so much shade at each other in this book in ways that, like, don't feel mean, but feel very competitive is, is fun. Yeah. Yeah, I like the vibe a lot, and it, it was very fitting for right now with the Olympics going on to read a story that was kind of like just that. Yeah. Um... One thing I thought was interesting, we got a reference to the uh, first child of Zeus in this one, who I haven't seen mentioned since the uh, Brian Azzarello Cliff Chang run at the beginning of the New 52. Uh, That was in A God With No Name by Che Grayson and Corin Howell. Um, 
makes me wonder if we're going to see some of those story beats and character designs start popping up again, because I adored Cliff Chang's character designs in that run. Yeah, I enjoyed the character, but I wasn't familiar with them beforehand, so... It... I mean, the I mean, recap it... you get here is almost everything you need to know. Um, basically, that character's sort of emergence in that run, which I strongly recommend. I think it's getting a, a an affordable reprint soon, like in a couple of trade paperbacks. Because it's been out of print for a while. Um, like he's very much sort of this this almost big bad prophecy that they're trying to avoid coming true. And obviously, like it's Greek myth, the avoidance causes the thing. Right. Um, but yeah, if you if you haven't checked out that run before, I definitely recommend it. Um, Mariko Tamaki and Jamie McKelvey opened this one up uh, mm. with letters by Simon Boland. Their story is fun. Just the two of them are a great team together. Uh, and anytime we get McKelvey art, I was going to say I'm a sucker for, for McKelvey art. You know that. Yeah. Uh, I like what he does with the coloring in that story. Yeah, I was going to bring that up because it, the last page of that story, it's an excellent use of like gold and black to make everything have this like wonderful amber hue mm -hmm. to it all. And and they're probably cheating a little bit in terms of like what pigments they're actually using in it all. But to to take the the black, white, and gold kind of elements and have that be well the black and white part is the like the sadness that sort of overtakes so much of it and then the last couple panels are full of color but even if it is like monochromatic it still feels rich and warm and and full of life yes. full of love one might say yeah <laughs> all right uh i want to talk a little bit about black beacon number one uh this is written by ryan k Lindsay with art by sebastian Pires and letters by hame uh this was Originally printed in Heavy Metal, and Heavy Metal has started putting out their comics that are printed in the magazine in individual standalone single issues a little later. Um, this made it on my radar because Ryan K. Lindsay is a writer whose short-form stuff I really dig. I don't know how much long-form work he's done. Um, most of what I've found has been short-form either... Uh, like graphic novellas or short miniseries. Uh, Sebastian Pires is an incredible artist who, like, even just the pinups he throws up on Twitter are, like, super stylized and have a lot of motion and character. Uh, and he's a really canny colorist. And he is drawing and coloring this uh, book, which is set on this alien world that we learn over the course of the first issue is a refuge for other alien races whose worlds are dying or have been destroyed but it is full up uh at the start of the story when a human in like an escape pod crashes to the planet and this human is, like, part of a team. Her job is as storyteller. She's the one, like, non-science member of the team. Because the thinking is, if other humans are going to escape to this world, they need someone who can, like, paint a picture of it. Who can experience it and experience life on it and tell people about that in a moving way. And not just numbers, folks. Well, there's no room for her. Uh, and... Like, the, the sort of... I don't know what this character's role is entirely. Almost almost like peace officer, but it doesn't feel like there's that much structure or system in place to really be titled. Uh, kind of 
intervenes and saves her from being killed by one of the other inhabitants of this world because the only way someone gets to stay is if they kill and take someone else's land. Uh, and the story kind of becomes about that that peace officer dealing with surviving on the world and like helping her survive while she sort of tries to experience things around her. Uh, and eventually, like, he makes it so that she can stick around. Um, I'm being a little vague just because I think a lot of the fun of this is seeing how the shape of it unfolds. But I cannot get over just how beautiful the colors in this book are. Um, like, it's a fun sci-fi story. It definitely feels like a sci-fi miniseries. But it is worth just picking up a copy of... And just flipping through to look at the pages. Uh, there's this one double page spread that's just like a ship in this big cosmic void. And just the amount of texture in both the line work and color work is astounding. Like, I am surprised in a very, like, physical material science sense. I am surprised that they were able to get some of these colors to reliably print on paper with ink. Like the jump from RGB to CMYK for some of these colors is truly kind of surprising to me. Um, and I'm sure that that's a lot of just smart color theory and use of contrast and all of that. But one of the most beautiful looking books I've picked up in a long time. Oh, wow. There are some preview pages online. Check out those preview pages at the very least. Uh, stunning stunning book amazing fantasy number one written drawn and colored by Kari andrews with letters by joe sabino uh what if marvel but pulp story yeah really really taking that amazing fantasy part and really, really doubling down on yeah, it yeah. can i say, can can we just before we even open the book can we just say this pulp homage of this cover is like the most right this looks like the most like conan looking cover of yeah or like a john Carter. yeah exactly yeah. yeah yep very much so yeah i so, mean it, so good it immediately telegraphs what are the influences what is the story you are in for yep uh yep down to having like like an orc that's <laughs> <laughs> the thing it's fighting and he's riding a, a winged lion uh yeah yeah, um, he being Captain America, <laughs> right? Yeah, no, Captain America, battle axe wielding <laughs> right. hero. And so, what we get, we get this the start of of Cap on this boat, and what we later find out, you know, they get attacked, and what we find out is in this story, Cap dies in World War Two. Um, and when he awakens, he is now Cap, what Captain Kazar. <laughs> <laughs> Captain Kazar! <laughs> Thank you, Alex. I knew, I knew I could get it from you. <laughs> I would never disappoint you, Brian. Oh, I love it. I love it. Uh, but yeah, yeah. And, and I love it because, like the uh, like Conan is a is a part of the of the Marvel world, yeah. and mm -hmm. like we're we're not even going to deal with that because we've got so many other barbarians to <laughs> deal with right now. Um, I mean, it's fine because like you would normally assume that like Thor would be the person you'd go to for that that kind of story, but like Captain America, like would do quite well in any of these like settings well, especially <laughs> like would, if you consider like the world war ii cap right because i yeah. mean if you think it like that's when so many of these you know lost people who are in this savage world like that's when so many of those stories kind of started was during that kind of time frame also so it, it it does very much fit um yeah then we get uh then we get red room black widow right Yep. 
And uh, it is a Black Widow who's trying to escape to the West, and that's a trap. And Mm -hmm. she, too... It's a trap. It's a trap! She, too, gets, as TikTok puts it, unalived. Unalived, yes. Yes, indeed. Um, And then uh, Spidey gets pumpkin-bombed one too many times, I guess. Yep. Yep. Yeah, this is high school Peter Parker, and... uh, Let's just say this Peter didn't didn't learn to dodge those pumpkin bombs quite as well. No, no. Um, and yeah, it, it's fun taking all these characters from the their like nascent points. Yes, yeah. you know they're they're all on the cusp of the of the adventures that they we know that they would go on, and then plucking them right at that moment of death for each of them and putting them in this like fantasy setting. Yeah, and they each end up being found or finding, uh, kind of different groups of people to go in with shall we say i think they describe it in in the upcoming next issue as clans to join right yeah um Mm -hmm. and peter in particular uh find somebody he wasn't expecting right (laughs) yeah what a cool cool story twist i loved this what a twist what a twist so we know it's we know it's high school peter so he is in the absolute height of his angst about Uncle Ben dying and, you know, getting started as Spider-Man and all this stuff. And so when he dies, uh, who is he brought to meet? That would be one Uncle Ben. Uncle Ben, yeah. <laughs> I love Gene that. DeWolf. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> I do love that. I, I love how blatant and matter-of-fact this is, where he goes, too long. How, how is this possible? Where are we? Oh, Peter. You're dead. <laughs> like, just right there. I also want to mention, one of the things I love about Kari Andrews as an artist is he's actually super flexible in style, which the cover to the interiors is an example of. But every period and setting in this book, while they all still look like Kari Andrews' sort of typical interiors line work, mm-hmm. he colors and stylizes to be distinct so this afterlife world is one style the steve of the 40s is one style natasha of the 80s is one and then peter of the 60s like very much is influenced by sort of 60s early marvel yeah the one i the one i really love is that that black widow one right Mm -hmm. the natasha one that is very much that 80s painted style right Like when it was like that was like the biggest thing to do it was like ooh this is a painted story like it it <laughs> yeah it looks like Frank Miller Electra or or I was gonna say even almost like Kari Andrews doing uh doing Phil Noto a little bit a little bit yeah yeah I, I yeah. love it I'm gonna be honest I did not look at the credits um uh, and I did not realize that it was all one artist I honestly thought it's like oh yeah they brought in people for the pages that made sense for each nope. of those of those styles. That's incredible. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, oh my god. Yes. Fantastic. Um, This is fun. Yeah, yeah. I, I dug it, and I just noticed the cover to issue two uh, on the last page, and that is gorgeous. All of these covers alone are incredible. Right? Beta Ray Bill, number five. Speaking of big, bombastic fun. Oh my god. I want Daniel Warren Johnson to play D&D with me. I don't care if he's a player or my DM. Like, I want to play D&D with that man. (laughs) 
Yeah, actually, yes, 100%. Um, I Like, the end of the previous issue, I've never had a more just like, oh, this should have been obvious, but also, fuck yeah, like, <laughs> moment. Yeah. And and we got it. Like I I can't believe I I just never realized. Like oh yeah, we haven't had like a straight on Surter versus Beta Ray Bill fight. And man, what a fight! <laughs> it's it's incredible. And I love like just over the arc of this five issue story, how natural it felt to like let him accept help. When I don't think in issue one he would have you know he would have played the no my honor is at stake I must fight this battle alone card. Mm-hmm. Now it's just, no, I need what I need, and you have done horrible shit, and these are my friends, we're in this together. But without really being explicit about that. Yeah, like, this is a, a, a wonderful... Like, the story is ultimately fairly simple in terms of the actual events that occur in this whole in this whole miniseries. Um, but it's all wonderfully realized. It has, like, the, this epic scope to it at, at all the right moments. And then there's these, like, these amazing personal moments in there. Um, in addition to a giant ship that's been turned into a gun that, you know, <laughs> that scourges the executioner is going to fire and uh, and cry a little bit when he does. But like, I love when, uh, that panel, just the single tear as he's holding the yeah. trigger. <laughs> Man, the executioner has gone from being just like this like hack villain from the '60s, where it's just like, well, shit, we need someone for Thor to fight, to being like this incredible character over the like, years. He's almost the closest thing you get to evil himbo. But is he even truly evil anymore? Well, like ever since the Walt Simonson stand on the bridge, fair. Like, like I think everyone's been sort of like, yeah, all right, yeah. And if you're gonna do scourge, you gotta do him justice. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's fair. But like the moment where, like, when they're looking over Pip the troll being like in surgery after like his lung being destroyed or whatnot. And like, there's just one quick panel of Scourge touching the glass and saying, I was never worried. And like, obviously like the text is contrasting. Then what you know was the exact Mm -hmm. opposite. You know, it's such a good personal moment in there. Like it's again, the, 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 we're just going to journey into hell and fight a demon King kind of story is very simple. Um, But all the parts of it, you, you feel so much for these characters and all the illustrations for it really just, like, get your blood pumping the whole time. Like, this was such a good ride. Yeah, and it's, it's... I mean, the trick is always, like, finding those moments in contrast. And I feel like those are some of the best storytelling beats in any medium that exists. Is like, in a book that is as over-the-top and, like, heavy metal-inspired, right, as a Daniel Warren Johnson-drawn book, having those quiet, introspective moments where, like, there's literally nothing but the art that is contradicting the text, but that contradiction is so clear. Like, really, really becomes the lifeblood of something that, like you said, is is simple otherwise. Like, it gives it an entire different, an entirely different context than just, we're going into hell to steal a sword! Right, yeah, because that, that could have been played so many ways, but to get this, uh, again, this, this heavy metal vibe character study yeah for everyone it, it, it's so good it, uh, like i only recently read murder falcon and i've just been so uh so enthralled by by johnson's ability to have these deeply personal moments while having these like over the top impossible imagery yeah kind of juxtapositions it's, it's it's fantastic stuff and i i don't know like beta ray bill is a character i love i i I'm always a little wary of having too much Beta Ray Bill because I know, like I've seen him diluted too much. Like if they put him on a team book that's on Earth, it's like, well, why? Why, why do we have him here? Yeah. Why, like 
he should be doing crazy stuff. He should be fighting a herald of Galactus and pitting them to an asteroid with their own weapon. <laughs> like, like that, he, should, he should be doing cool he stuff. He should be out there punching the planet Dormammu. <laughs> right, yes, yeah, which we'll get to in a second. You know what, why don't we just transition there? Because this book is good, you should go read it if you haven't read it yet. <laughs> like, Yeah, you know what, let's do it. Let's go ahead and jump into that, and we'll come back to some of the other more terrestrial stuff in a moment. Uh, let's jump to X-Men books, and uh, even start a little out of order and talk about Sword Number 7 first. This is written by Al Ewing, with art by Stefano Caselli, colors by Fer Sefuente Suho, letters by Ariana Mar, and design by Tom Moeller. Uh, Case, you mentioned as we were getting getting ready to record, you have been catching up on the Last Annihilation stuff, right? Yep. Yep. Uh, yeah, so last time I was on, we were talking about S.W.O.R.D. as well, so this was kind of a nice jumping point because i mentioned the uh the storm uh being trapped as a statue moment with dr doom mm-hmm. in that mm-hmm. one uh and then they call back to that in their <laughs> dinner in this one which was uh I, I was like oh nice i'm on the same page here yeah <laughs> like, i do uh, i love their banter though during that <laughs> it was it was delightful i i am loving storm ascending to being just the queen of marvel like this is yeah this is this is what is right with the universe all, all is good <laughs> yeah um, yeah what was doom's comment something about uh it's good to see you as it's good to see you as as the queen of something instead of just you know the king's a king's wife right. <laughs> and she's like do we really want to talk about marriages right now? Or is it too soon for you? <laughs> Which, uh, if you read Fantastic Four this week, <laughs> burn? <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> oh, good. Fantastic so good. Uh, Four, in which Doom's wedding was interrupted by his bride saying, hey, before I say I do, uh, I need you to know, like, two weeks ago I slept with Johnny Storm. <laughs> so, so, is that a double burn, then? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yes. There's certainly some aloe involved. There you go. Um, and then, oh my god. Like, yeah. is this the ultimate realization of having Abigail Brand in charge of S.W.O.R.D.? I think so. And I, I alluded earlier to our tie back to Empire. We get the moment at the end of uh, whichever Empire book it was, uh, Empire Avengers Aftermath, maybe? Yeah, probably. Um, where we got the coda of, uh, uh, Hulkling beaten on the battlefield, his sword shattered, his yep. lieutenants killed, and Abigail Brand coming to the rescue. And she does that, and also we learn what a manipulative dick in space she is. Right? Mm-hmm. But she's the one you want to root for. <laughs> kind of. Kind of, yeah. Like, I, I mean, okay, she's the one that you want to win because the others are worse? Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I mean, in, in, in the choice between Gyrick and Brand, I will choose Brand. Yeah, it's it's kind of like, right. at least you know she's fighting for the right thing. Even She's like the Amanda Waller of, of Krakoa. Yeah. yeah. 100%. <laughs> Yes, which I would have given the beast, you know, not too long ago. But wow, wow, Mm, yeah, that's yeah, that's yeah, different scales. This is is yeah, this is like galactic scale. Yeah, that's the yeah, yeah. Which before we started recording, I was saying that the space stuff at Marvel is starting to feel like Legion of Superheroes in a very good way. This interconnected universe that we have uh, expanded out to and pulled back on multiple times over the course of Marvel's existence, like. 
uh, how much are we going to tie the humans to the Kree? How much are we going to tie all these different spacefaring things? How much are we going to spend time on the blue area of the moon? Um, like Earth now being now a colony of Mars and uh, Mars being the, the capital of our solar system and having a direct impact on the currency and apparently might be seeding like a, like magic ticking time bombs out into the world. Uh, like, like what the hell is going on in the series? I love it so much. It's amazing. Um, but it's, it's very cool that we're getting kind of like all these groups out there, like in the last issue of guardians of the galaxy, which was, was I think last week. Yeah. Um, there was this moment where with like moon dragon and like Hercules and all these like, you know, figures who are, have really solid power sets, uh, but they are a little restricted working in this sort of synergistic way felt like the legion it felt like okay well th that could have been saturn girl and that could have been monel right there and that could you know um it, it could have been block and that you know we were getting all these like really strong vibes and feeling like space politics in the best possible way like it's <laughs> I, I do think it's funny considering that you know we just finished up heroes reborn and like it was the shire imperial guard that was the legion you know kind of uh yeah, well, that yeah. again, that's always like that's baked into. The no, I know that, but I'm just saying. I, I like... think it's interesting that it's the Shi'ar Guard that is like the Legion of Superheroes, and now we get this. It, it is the space, you know, area that kind of is having this whole feel. Yeah, yeah, and it feels like characters are coming into their own where they're truly destined to be. Like Hercules, we've always seen these stories of him like later in his life as a cosmic sparing, uh, like faring superhero, um, and it's always been like, all right, so how does he make that transition? Because the the current book the book the the books that are being published set in the present day he's like trapped on Earth and kind of like stuck in his like Greek god kind of persona like we're seeing that sort of spilling out and this issue just I mean this issue just feels like more of like all the space stuff like Dor Dormammu possessing goddamn ego <laughs> and then having floating head attack crafts and like kaiju uh, mindless ones uh, showing up out of nowhere like it's it's wonderful stuff. Um, Hulkling is really starting to be a character I really enjoy. I've always liked Young Avengers stuff, um, but but him being sort of like a fanboy for the Hulk, even though his you know his bloodline is from Captain Marvel and like the um, and like the Queen of the Scrolls and like this whole, whole unified Empire thing, it's really kind of like now he's coming off as this like true figure of royalty, this dashing prince whose very strength inspires his people and his magic consort. <laughs> Like like wizard husband, uh, it it's all it's great stuff. It's, I'm really it's enjoying sword it. and sorcery in space. At a and that's exactly level. what I was going to say. Right? This is this is like the, the almost the Kone, right? The, or the 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 warlord from DC or Kaza, where you have the kind of the quote barbarian king and the sorcerer, you know, consort, right? Well, it, I mean, really, it is Star Wars. It's the yeah, space opera level yeah. of. A thing which is great. Uh, I love that we get some Pybok. I'm always here for more Pybok. <laughs> um, I love also that Pybok we're getting focused on in the X Men book because, like, he was when he was introduced. While it's not as, quite as explicit as with uh, with with Clert, um, his power set is supposed to be derived from X Men characters. So it's nice that that's where we're seeing him, and we're spending more time with Clert elsewhere. Clert being Super Scroll and Pybok being Power Scroll. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean the the dinner with, with between Doom and Storm was was just wonderful. The all of this, I can't wait to see how this event goes. But like, I love when like the dual kaiju mindless ones like teleport or like manifested and then committed suicide so that they could get a shot off on uh, Captain Glory. Yeah, Alex, how happy were you to see L'Oreal again? Always, always happy to see L'Oreal. Um, she's worth it. 
<laughs> Perfect. Perfect sense. Let's talk about Cable. Written by Jerry Duggan, art by Phil Noto, letters by Joe Sabino, designed by Tom Moeller. I had incredibly conflicted feelings reading this. Well, I know that I, the negative was, but, 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 but I want more. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's basically it, yeah. Like, I've never been so um, happy with the execution of someone disappointing me. <laughs> that is a great way to put it, because I think you're absolutely right. Well, and I, I feel like this book ends on a promise of like, hey guys, I'm writing X-Men now, but I promise to get back to this. Yeah. Oh yeah, like the the end tag of it all is, is yeah. fantastic. So I'm gonna start off by saying that I was on team. He's actually strife, um, up until this issue where they finally <laughs> just address it. Um, like I, I couldn't get past the the whole he caught the blade and he had blood and Apocalypse noticed it panels from uh, from Ten of Swords, and I, I had been sitting with that like theory that no, this is actually Kid Strife, and this is how at the end of this all we're gonna get both of them. Where it's a like a rehabilitated strife as a young mutant and like an old man cable, so that we get we can have our cake and eat it too. And uh, unfortunately, th- this book confirms that we are not allowed to have both our cake and eat it. We have to make a choice, and so we decided to eat it because uh, it's tasty. And this issue is very and tasty. Weird Al told us to. <laughs> um, I didn't think I would ever have an absolutely favorite cuckoo, but yeah. Now, now, hang on, hang on, Brian, hang on. I'm going to challenge this assertion. Are you sure that you can immediately declare Esme your favorite in Cable when Phoebe is also very good in X-Force? Yeah, but this one and just, you know, you know what sealed the deal is the future old old lady Esme. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Although she's either aged very well or done, had a lot of work done. I mean, either have you seen Emma? Out. I mean, come on. I, I know. Either <laughs> checks out just fine. No, I, I almost stopped uh, when I was reading this uh, and like almost insisted on uh, my wife pausing what she was watching so I could show her the panel. Because I've done this a few times with Cable now. Because Esme just constantly has like a zinger that I'm like, <sighs> I feel like we all appreciate these lines. Uh, <laughs> And it's like, we were never supposed to tell you that uh, that you were a mission, but I don't care anymore. After our first date, I knew you were just a dumb boy. And I like that. Like, <laughs> it's such wonderful, like, teenage girl, like, or bitchy teenage girl lines yeah. uh, that are just somehow super endearing. I appreciated Deadpool calling uh, Strife Shredder. <laughs> yes. That, that warmed my heart. That was real, real good. These are the most messed up mutant turtles I've ever seen. Don't worry, I brought the cleansing power of fire. <laughs> <laughs> Deadpool. Uh, uh, the the cycle of strife and cable killing each other and becoming this sort of weird resurrection. Oh, now I clone myself. Oh, I move my memories to this body. Oh, we time travel. Oh, it's a different timeline kind of thing. I love so much, and I just feel like it's so baked into the the character. But we never spend enough time doing that. And this issue, like all of a sudden, it became so uh four-dimensional that i just want i want the series to come back now like in a way that i didn't ever think i was going to for a cable book yeah i've liked cable i i read the book in the 90s i read the like cable and deadpool stuff in the 2000s i i like gushed so much about the cable silver surfer fight uh like i thought that was incredible i thought that they've done such cool things with cable over the years for a character who was so offensively 90s when he came out he so was that 
they parodied him in Kingdom Come with Magog and just put horns on a on <laughs> Shatterstar's face mask and put it on his face. And there you go. That's Magog right there. I mean, uh, because they needed to like make fun of 90 superheroes. And now we have a book where let's have a sword-wielding, gun-toting, cyborg, Phoenix Force wielder uh, fighting a clone of himself, traveling through time, and fighting alongside like the younger version of himself to murder his genetic duplicate. Well, this time, while his, maybe while next his, time it's going to be different. While his mom, dad, and girlfriend help out, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I uh, have to call back to the running joke that Brian and I had in, in 2020 in which inexplicably some of our favorite books were Cable and Suicide Squad and <laughs> all these books that, like, normally, you're right, we never would have, like, really gotten super into. Just goes to prove, get the right creative team on a book, give it the right angle. Oh. And this this was absolutely it. This not this hit all the right right buttons. Um, and let's not forget the whole uh, last night of Galador thing. No, I, I wanted that to... is definitely going to be a like if there was ever a seed that was planted, this was literally, a... <laughs> right, literally, exactly. exactly. Uh, so good. And then the yeah. and then the, the the Jean and Esme kind of working together. Mm-hmm. And like yeah. Jean looking at her, I really got the impression of like the mom with the you know the girl that's dating his her son, kind of thing on that. I I I loved mm-hmm. it. I loved it. I, mean, I just loved old man uh, Cable just ripping off uh, young Cable's arm and being like, <laughs> "Give me that obsolete shit." <laughs> I, got, I got a better one for you here. Yeah, I did like because uh, because of course like it's it is like the most natural thing right he's like so um can you tell me about and he's like no i can't tell you anything about the future he's like but i just want to know that it's all worth it and he was like i can tell you that you fighting is the right thing to do essentially you know you fighting makes things better not that everything turns out good but that it makes things better and like that's really isn't that kind of all you could hope for yeah yeah, this like militant Doctor Who. This like I'm a soldier fighting w- across wars across time uh, is is really fun if you handle it right. Like comics keeps trying to do it with like a Rip Hunter or with you know all the various like <laughs> all the various times they tried to do it with X Men with Days of Future Past and kind of stuff. But like Cable a- again, like it's just so crazy to think that Cable, a book that was spawned from such an era of just like we're gonna rip off everything. Uh, in the worst ways, has become a book that I loved so goddamn much. <laughs> and what's truly is amazing is look how good it can be even without those muscles on his muscles. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> or or pockets on his pockets. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's talk about Wolverine, number 14. Written by Benjamin Percy. Art by Adam Kubert. Colors by Frank Martin. Letters by Corey Pettit. Designed by Tom Muller. I always I forget could... how pretty this book is. Yeah, and I'm a, I'm a, you know what? I'm just going to jump right to it. That my favorite part of this entire book is that what it has set up for the next issue. I think that's fair. Uh, I liked Solemn a lot, and I'm here for the return of Solemn. Exactly. I am super excited about that. I do not want to undersell, though. Uh, nope. Oh, what is what is the the new guy's name? I, I was going to say that is not to take away from this particular issue, which is also fantastic. Sever Blackmore, who is Pirate Bane. Yes, yeah, he is Pirate Bane, with maybe a little bit of the uh, Dark Knight Returns mutants. 
vibe. Oh, okay. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. I think that may just be the teeth. It could be. Um, I, I, can I say how much I love Wolverine as, like, detective and bounty hunter type person? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> this book takes a noir vibe, especially around the... Yeah, I don't answer to Emma, but for now it's convenient to let her think I do. Yes, indeed. <laughs> oh, oh. Emma just shows up to be like, yes, this is not X-Factor business, this is Hellfire business now, and I'm calling the shot. Um, There's a double-page spread with Wolverine doing his best, like, pirate thing, hanging off a mast as they sort of approach this pirate cove that Blackmore is hanging out in, which I adored. <laughs> and then his comment when he goes to face him about, a. Uh... The thing about really big guys is they're so used to winning with muscle, you just have to outweigh them with crazy. <laughs> yeah. Crazy beats big every time. And then Blackbird's like, you're crazy. I love you. Let's drink. <laughs> Which is like the most Logan. Like, Logan's got to love this guy, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, both with... Blackmore and Solemn now, like, mm -hmm. Ben Percy has given us a couple of new characters who are, like, very on Logan's wavelength, but, like, definitely in a position to be just a thorn in his side constantly. Yep. And I like the more of that that we have that isn't, isn't drawing from the experiment, Weapon X stuff, mm -hmm. and isn't drawing from the hasn't aged super well uh, appropriative Wolverine in Japan stuff that we get, like, the happier I am with Wolverine. Yeah. God, I... And Ben Percy is, like, the nicest guy in the world. Um, I, I cannot wait to have a chance at some point to meet him again and talk to him about all this. Yeah. Yeah. One more. Eternals number six, written by Kieran Gillen, art by Asad Ribic, colors by Matthew Wilson, and letters and design by Clayton Cowles. This is the end of our first arc. Actually, the book's going on a little break after this. We're going to get some one-shots with other artists. Uh, I have dug this book and what it does with narration. Like, the way that the narrator is... Still kind of third-person omniscient, but a character in the story and, like, being affected by the story is really genius as a way to sort of unify this book with this big cast of characters who most people, myself included, don't know super well. And that all comes to a head here. Case, what did you think about this? Okay, so I haven't been reading this series, but that's mostly because I was just trying to catch up on other things first. Sure. Uh, I'm always here for Eternal stuff, by just by virtue of when I got into comics and how I hit Marvel first. Uh, this was during the, the Cersei on, uh, on the Avengers era of, of comics. So I got, I got indoctrinated in the Eternal stuff long before I found out about New Gods, which is kind of the reverse of most people. Yeah. Uh, so I'm always here for that. I was happy to have some Thanos crossover because I think people often forget Thanos' connection to the Eternals, which is always very nice. And I love talking about sort of the system that the Eternals play a part in. You know, I think uh, I, I made a comparison between the Inhumans and the and Mutants and X-Men, uh, and I think that this is all part of the same kind of structure that Marvel specifically goes into, where the Celestial Seed that has infected different worlds uh, has sort of an order to it and has a, a structure that um, societies are going to lend itself to, and Eternals are the ones that they how they want it to be yeah and then everything else is sort of like working its way to that point of eventually being like 
hidden societies of basically uh, caretakers for the bonsai tree that is the celestial seed in each world that they take over. Um, and I love seeing the different versions that we've been getting with it. And it's nice to have this extreme version of it where it's they're barely human in terms of like how we understand like free will and so forth. Like they're like almost constructs. Um, but the way their backup systems and everything work is very similar to like the Cerebro model. Mm-hmm. And I like that we're again, we're seeing sort of like different different points on the evolution of that all or devolution uh, in the case of getting more stuff with the scrolls, where their entire species is the deviant strain of their species. Um, so that's always fun. Like Icarus, for example, being such a Superman type figure, uh, but it's it's in that he's programmed to save the day kind of yeah. thing. It's not he's not actually uplifting anyone. It's just, oh, I'm going to stop the tidal wave. That's like about to hit the the island or like stop the volcano that's exploding. Well, and I love Gillen's metaphor of he is an arrow. An arrow flies. Yeah. An arrow hits its target. These are the things Icarus does. Um, and also maybe don't trust metaphor too much because that will lead you down the wrong path. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I love the art. I love the, the concept of the, the cost of their existence. Like they are... Um, you know, like like I said, they are um, shepherds, effectively, for the human race, mm-hmm. uh, which is the cultivation that the Celestials are really more concerned with. And uh, to feel like that they are occasionally uh, picking one of their flock to to uh, to skin instead of shear uh, when situations get really extreme is a nice twist. And to have that moral implication. And then the idea that they have forgotten it so many times because it, they're not supposed to remember. Yeah, well, and that that then leads them at the end of this, this sort of core group who this book has followed, leads them to, like, cast their lot in with the Deviants. Yeah. I I love that it's that that very specific line between, um, like, a divine hero and an ironic hero, like someone who is trapped in the system by virtue of their own power, and it, it's kind of like how Dr. Manhattan in Watchmen, like, ultimately he was powerless because he, everything was ordained to a certain yeah. degree so even though he had infinite powers and the eternals have such vast abilities like they again can play the part of superman because hyperion or at least the one the original hyperion was an eternal like that's they can just do the that role if they want to because they're that powerful and more because they can reshape matter as they see yeah. it they can you know they can do whatever they want like they're infinitely powerful godlike beings that zuras the strongest of them competes with zeus and odin all the time in terms of just like uh, yep, I, I can piss cosmic energy too. <laughs> uh, but it, inevitably, they have no true agency, and this is trying to tell a story about them breaking away from a, a preordained pattern that they're supposed to work with. Yeah, I I would definitely go back and check out those earlier issues. Like I said, there's a the bit of, a bit of a break uh, coming up, but I if you don't know the Eternals very well, I also need to say like this is a great introduction. To the Eternals, this this first arc, um, Gillen's talked about how like one of his goals was really making each issue kind of an introduction to another character or two, and building and getting to this point where like you know who these people are and you are invested in what's going on. And I think that one hundred percent he has stuck the landing on that for this first arc. Yeah, I look forward to reading this in trade. Okay, is it still good? Something is Killing the Children, number 18. Uh, we meet the new best member of the House of Slaughter as Erica faces her first trial. Batman Superman, number 20. 
Uh, all of the, the characters we've met so far, Batman, Robin, Superman, Lois, uh, Alana, not Alana, yeah, Alana Strange, and El Diablo, uh, fight the, uh, the newest threat thrown at them, the demon. Checkmate number two, Brian. Uh, Lois Lane gets kidnapped by Leviathan because I'm pretty sure she wants to ask Mark Shaw, do you want to build a snowman? <laughs> also, the cover asks, "Who is the Demon Rose?" This book yeah, does not answer yeah, this, that. It does not even address it. Like you never oh, yeah. hear the so name. Don't, Demon don't get Rose? suckered into that. Yeah. See, see last week's Justice League sixty-five. <laughs> yeah. Batman Secret Files Huntress number one, or maybe Detective Comics number ten thirty-eight point five. No doubt about it. It's definitely that. This this sort of takes place between Batman 1038 and 1039. We kind of see it referenced at the beginning of 1039. Uh, Huntress escapes the hospital after her encounter with Hugh Vile, realizes that she can see through the eyes of everyone else infected with his parasites, and uh, takes the fight to him before having a horrible realization about who else has been infected. Uh, Detective Comics 1039... Uh, gives us Bruce Wayne's Weekend in Jail, uh, as well as a backup called The Quiet and, Unsung, Quiet and Unsung Death of Kurt Langstrom about, like, this sort of horror story about this this sort of fear-based force trying to find root in our world through Man Bat and, like, Batman watching him make this heroic sacrifice that no one can ever know about. Uh, it's a really, really great Man Bat story. I say as someone who is never, like, anything more than apathetic toward Man Bat outside of this latest Justice League Dark stuff. Mr. Miracle, the Source of Freedom, number three. Uh, we learn that one man may have the answers to what's going on, and his name is Oberon. Robin, number four, Brian. Uh, Damien takes a, takes a break from Lazarus Island to spend, uh, to have training day with Grandpa. Strange Adventures, number 11. Uh, boy, howdy, Adam Strange is a dick in space. <laughs> and Alana confronts Dicks him for it. in space! <laughs> I feel like that should be the episode title, but it's probably gonna be Justice Babies, just to, like, not piss off the iTunes gods. <laughs> Teen Titans Academy number five, Brian. Uh, the secret origin of the Bat Pack, and um, we don't find out who Red X is, but they do. Also, just shout out to the variant cover for this issue, which is absolutely gorgeous. Oh uh, yeah, it is. Yes. Wonder Woman number seven seventy five, Brian. Uh, in our main story, we get uh, Wonder Woman in uh, essentially Alfheim. Uh, and uh, find out she is not um, particularly great with fighting magic in some cases. Um, but she gets she gets by with a little help from her friends. She gets high with a little help from her friends. The Department <laughs> uh, of Truth. I, I just, and then a young Diana, we we get a bit of a confession from from somebody. The Department of Truth, number eleven. Shh, be wary, wary, quiet. I'm hunting Bigfoots. The Amazing Spider-Man, number 71. We learned that Mysterio used to be Mary Jane's therapist. Black Knight, Curse of the Ebony Blade. The Black Knight is dead. Long live the Black Knight. Black Widow, number nine, Brian. Uh, we're going to start by saying congratulations to uh, to Miss Kelly Thompson. That's amazing. The whole creative team. Yes. The whole creative team. I, yes, but yeah, uh, 
fan fantastic. Um, we're gonna we're gonna cover this one more in depth when we get the last issue of this arc. That uh, congratulations is of course for their Eisner win. Oh yeah, I did not. I guess I didn't say that, but yes, absolutely. What uh, what happened in this one, Brian? Oh, uh, <laughs> it's almost like I forgot that we're doing this. <laughs> we hit the two hour mark, and all of us stopped being able to form words. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, uh, they were they recruit new help who is. Um, surprisingly amazing. I was not expecting this character to be as good as they are, but I'm super happy. Daredevil, number 32, Brian. Um, Electra and Matt both face off against, um, their own personal antagonists, and neither one of them find what they're expecting. I don't think I've ever been quite as terrified of the last page of a Daredevil no book as this one. shit. Fantastic Four, number 34, uh, we get the fallout of Zola mentioning, oh, hey, before I say I do, I, I did sleep with Johnny Storm like two weeks ago. It uh, goes badly for everyone involved in every possible way. The Mighty Valkyries, number four, uh, God, this book is gorgeous. Uh, Runa and Thor meet finally after uh, Sif gives Thor a great be on your best behavior speech. And uh, Jane figures out where the missing children have gone. Shang-Chi, number three. Uh, we learn who the, the head of the staff clan is or was, and Shang-Chi and company go to recruit her before the X-Men can. The United States of Captain America, number two. Uh, we meet another Cap, a young black woman who fights for infrastructure in her local community by day and corruption and crime by night as a Captain America. Barbaric number two. We learn the backstory of Soren the Witch and uh, take the fight to some very cold zombies. The Blue Flame number three. Uh, the Blue Flame continues to... Develop his case for not destroying Earth in the Cosmic Tribunal while uh, while he's awake, healing up from his attack uh, back at the end of issue one. The last book you'll ever read, number one, Brian. A new book by Colin Bunn. Um, we didn't cover this in depth because uh, this is, I think, going to be a bit of a slow burn. So I don't know that there's enough for me to judge whether I like this or not yet. So that's kind of why I'm a little reserved, but I still do like the premise, which is that there's an author who wrote a book that is, um, when people read it, it like awakens something in them that's causing violence for some reason. It's like she's revealing some sort of cosmic truth to them. And, uh, yeah, that's where we're at so far. Shadow service number 10. Some days you just can't get rid of a bomb when you're the bomb. Witch blood number five. Uh, our, our team of witch and witch hunters, uh, stops to fill up their truck and realizes, hey, we've got to lift a curse, uh, and go into dark tight spaces that not everyone is happy about. It's a fun book. This week's books, we have a bunch, a bunch of stuff coming up oh this week. Oh my gosh, so much. Uh, a new Maria Jovet book called Porcelain. Um, I mean, Maria Jovate, come for the gorgeous art, stay for the trippy stories, and psychedelic art. Not All Robots, number one. Written by Mark Russell. Art by Mike Diodato. You said the two reasons that you gotta get this book right there. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, 
There is a, a variant cover for this that is robots doing American Gothic that I think is hilarious. <laughs> the Me You Love in the Dark, number one of five. This is a miniseries from Scotty Young and Jorge Corona, with colors by Jean-Francois Beaulieu and letters by Nate Piekos. Um, I've seen some preview pages for this. It looks absolutely gorgeous. Uh, it's a mini series, which is always an easy f- sell for me. And I dig Scotty Young. This is the same creative team that did uh, Middle West. Mm-hmm. So if you dug that, definitely give it a check out. Those are words. Definitely check it out. <laughs> Deadpool, Black, White, and Blood, number one of four. Uh, I need to point to one story in specific on this list, which is called Red All Over. It is written by Tom Taylor, with art by Phil Noto and letters by Joe Sabino. Brian, do you know why I am pointing this one out? Uh, I don't, but and I'm assuming something other than the fact that it's Tom Taylor and Phil Noto, because that's enough for me. Hey, who's Deadpool's best friend? Cable. Gabby? Oh, God. <gasps> no. It is the, the return of the dynamic duo, Deadpool and, and Gabby. She, and that's after she gave him the finger. Come on. Yes. <laughs> Uh, we also have stories by Ed Brisson, we'll say Portacio, Rochelle Rosenberg, and Joe Sabino, oh, yeah. and uh, one by J- and one by James Stokoe. Yeah, like just all the reasons to get this book. Guardians of the Galaxy Annual Number One or Part Six, I think six or seven. I've lost count of Infinite Destinies. This is written by Al Ewing with art by Flaviano, colors by Rochelle Rosenberg, and letters by Corey Pettit. We have, I think made very clear how we feel about Al Ewing's space work right now. I think so. Just a little bit. Um, Also, don't forget that backup about uh, uh, Nighthawk convincing Fury to uh, help restart the Heroes Reborn universe. Horizon Zero Dawn Liberation number 104, written by Anne Toole and Ben McCaw, art by Elmer Damaso. I have made very clear in talking about comics based on this before horizon zero dawn is one of my all-time favorite video games i am here for more of this they just announced that horizon forbidden west is going to be delayed until 2022 which is fine and good let developers have time to make a good game without crunch k thanks bye and and give time people time to actually try to get a ps5 maybe yeah well there will be a ps4 version but yes um i i definitely would rather play it on the ps5 Yep, looking forward to that. Always want more Horizon Zero Dawn. Lucky Devil, number 104. Tell me about this one, Brian. Yeah, this is uh, Colin Bunn writing, Fran Galen on art, and El Torres on colors. Um, This is a book about uh, somebody who is possessed by a demon, and they manage to cast them out, but somehow retain all the powers that they had while they were possessed. And finally, Seven to Eternity, number 17. Why Written by Rick Reminder, art by her, art by Jerome Opinia, and colors by Matt Hollingsworth. Yeah, so why do we have a number 17 on here? And that's because this is the series finale. So yeah, this is going to be the last issue of this. It has been uh, a fantastic introduction. I've been waiting for this last issue so I can read the entire thing. Because good, good, good. I need this trade in my hands. <laughs> All right, Case. Thank you for joining us again. Where can folks find more of you? Uh, yeah, thank you for having me back. Um, online, you can find me on Twitter at Case Aiken, uh, or on Instagram at Quetzalcoatl5, because I am both a myth nerd and a Legion of Superheroes nerd. <laughs> Boom. But yeah, most of the stuff I create, you can find at CertainPOV.com. I am the host of Men of Steel, which is a Superman and Superman-adjacent podcast. Uh, 
which I do with J. Mike Paulson. I am the host of Another Pass, which I do with Sam Alisea, which is a show where we look at movies that uh, we found fascinating but flawed and speculate on what could have been done at the time of production to sort of shore up those weaknesses. And uh, I am the Dungeon Master for Scruffy Nerf Herders, which is currently on a hiatus, but is, is our network-wide uh, Star Wars D&D game. So those are all there. I also do all the videos that we do for our website. Uh, so I've got a Superman analog series that have been like little uh, little profiles of what I could remember about each of these characters. Started off as Twitter threads I did um, that I have now animated. I also animate like the, our side quest videos and our weekly like roundup of here's all the shows that came out uh, stuff. So uh, all of that's on certainpov.com or you can find on the podcast platform or YouTube or whatever, whatever thing you want to check out, check it out and it'll be there. <laughs> so speaking of side quests, I did an episode of that that also drops today as you're listening to this, talking about my love of Tales of Symphonia, a game that is as old now as I was when it came out. <laughs> as I look forward to animating your head, but it's going to be... <laughs> That's coming out weekly, and so a, a three times a fortnight uh, schedule is... I, I'm just never going to catch it. Oh my god, see that? And there we go again. Now I've got another clip I want to take out of context. I, I look forward to your animating your head? Yes, yeah. I look forward to animating your head. Yes. As always, we would like to thank Chase Parker for our intro voiceover. We are also a member of the Certain POV Network. If you're looking for other cool podcasts about popular culture, several of which Case just named, go to CertainPOV.com. You can also join our Discord there. Just scroll all the way to the bottom of that homepage. You can visit us at Panelologypodcast.com. Support us at Patreon.com slash Panelology. Get merch at bit.ly slash Panelology Merch, capital P, capital M. Or send us questions, comments, or whatever at bit.ly slash Panelology Mailbag, capital P, capital M. I'm Alex. I'm Brian. And I'm Case. You know what you should do this week? Go read comics. CertainPOV.com Hey, Nerf Herders. You sure you want to go with that? Hey, everyone? There we go. More inviting. Have you ever had a movie that you really wanted to love, but something holds you back? Or one that you did love in spite of a flaw? Well, I'm Casey. And I'm Sam Alisea. And on another pass, we sit down with cool guests to look at movies that we find fascinating. But flawed. And we try to imagine what could have been done when they were made to give them that little push. We're not experts. We just believe in criticism. Uh, constructive criticism. Sure. So come take another pass at some movies with us. And every now and then we can celebrate movies that did it on their own too. You can find us at certainpov.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Pass it on. <laughs>